you know, I can actually take on this problem. It's high risk for sure, but maybe there's a really capital light way to go at it where we can get a product out there and learn from users without necessarily, you know, needing to have the hundred million dollars that Google had spent or all the hundreds of really brilliant engineers that they had recruited out of Google to do it. It was a gamble, but one that I thought, you know, just maybe some combination of being naive and also having a little experience building startups made me think it was a good idea. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode Seek Truth for Yourself. My guest today dropped out of college and arrived in Silicon Valley, armed with a lot of robotics experience and the knowledge that he didn't want to be a cog in a big company. Then, he decided to take on Google. Not that he had much money or any engineers to start what would need to be one of the most capital-intensive startups in recent history and to face off against a company with world-class tech talent. He did it anyway, founding Cruise, a self-driving car startup. Fast forward to today, and my guest, Kyle Vogt, has made that seemingly crazy vision actually work. His cruise robo-taxis are self-driving and are on the streets of San Francisco, picking up passengers without any human being behind the steering wheel. I spoke to Kyle about all the years in between and the challenges he faced along the way, not listening to conventional wisdom, but instead seeking his own truth. But before Kyle was the CEO of Cruise, managing now more than 1,000 employees, he was just a kid tinkering with electronical engineering and who was obsessed with battle bots. You know, I remember I grew up in Kansas and uh, there's not a lot going on there. So I spent a lot of time in my garage tinkering with robots and, and building things. That's incredible. Uh, when did you build your first like working robot? Around uh, like sixth or seventh grade. I discovered BattleBots, the uh, TV show on Comedy Central with radio-controlled fighting robots and became obsessed with trying to build my own and just started hanging out on these message boards where all the BattleBots builders hung out and reading every single message I, I could find on electric motors and control systems and pneumatics and all this kind of stuff and started, you know, assembling stuff in my basement, you know, lots of trips to Home Depot and Radio Shack and starting to put things together. I did a lot of like really dumb things and, you know, it took a long time to do anything, but I kind of feel like those moments in a basement or a garage tinkering and just kind of experimenting and figuring stuff out, it makes you really resourceful because you figure out how to do a lot with very little, especially if you have like, you know, no money in seventh grade or something. Yeah, sure. And, and was that always sort of a solo project for you? Was that something you did alone or did you enlist friends or siblings or, or your parents to help? Yeah, my, my parents were very supportive. They were blissfully ignorant of what I was doing in the basement. You know, my dad uh, worked at a at a, a bank uh, and my mom worked at a library. So they, this was a very foreign, you know, any kind of engineering was really foreign to them, but they were like, you know, if you love it, go for it, which, you know, I really appreciate to this day. But in terms of partners, I had like one friend from my, you know, classmate in seventh grade who would kind of chip in, but I ended up being the ringleader because I was just obsessed with trying to figure out how to build one of these robots. And then later on, I brought in another partner for the second one I built. But yeah, it was, it was, uh, 
it was definitely my obsession with trying to build a robot. And I have no idea what caused me to get so excited about that. But um, I was definitely like, you know, the, the driving force behind getting these things all the way to the finish line. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible that there's a pretty straight line from that to your career. I mean, you then went to college and, and studied robotics, right? Yeah. And actually between the BattleBots and, and going to MIT, where I worked on self-driving cars, there was uh, a smaller self-driving car. You know, it was one of those electric kitty cars that kids can ride around on that I put a webcam on and a, a Pentium 233 computer smashed that thing into a little electric car and, you know, <laughs> tried to make it drive through a parking lot. And, and that was inspired actually from this, I don't know, crazy uh, 10 or 11 hour drive. I think my dad and I did going from Kansas where we lived all the way to uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, where this BattleBot show was. And I just remember being on this road. It was a straight, boring road going through Western Kansas. And I had my learner's permit, so I was allowed to drive. I think I was 15. And I just remember thinking, this is so boring. Why can't you just put a webcam on this on the dashboard of this car and you know hook up some wires to the steering wheel to, to, and a motor to make it turn? Like we shouldn't be driving, and and that was kind of where the the kernel of the idea came from. Wow! Uh, and I haven't got it out of my head ever since. So you were like fifteen, sixteen years old. What what year was this? This would have been like nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, somewhere around there. Wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah! Fantastic. Actually, you know, I wanted to bring up this the story of you dropping out of MIT is actually in my book about okay. Reddit. I don't know if you've uh, <laughs> if you've read that, but. Uh, there's like a little kernel of the story um, when when you were hanging out with Justin Kahn and those guys. Um, I don't know if you want to tell kind of your introduction to San Francisco and startup culture. Yeah, I mean, I can tell my version of this story and we'll see if it matches up with what you've heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I went to MIT and my, my freshman year, I, I um, the thing I loved about MIT was being surrounded by really brilliant, passionate people, very humbling. And in fact, sort of a preview of what it's like to come out to San Francisco and be surrounded by entrepreneurs. But really brilliant people. I found a group of them that were in robotics and we worked on the DARPA Grand Challenge, which was a government funded program to try to get people to build autonomous vehicles that could drive 60 miles through the desert. And it was a, it was a race. And so we worked on that. We didn't get very far, you know, cause it was all undergrads doing this in their free time. We didn't have faculty support, but it was like one of the most fun projects I had ever worked on. And, and that, you know, it was a seed that was planted, I think that I picked up later for starting crews, but Anyways, uh, one of the things I was doing was hanging around MIT and trying to meet entrepreneurs. I always knew in the back of my head that I wasn't meant to sort of work in a large company and just just be a, you know a cog in a machine or have that feeling. Um, I'd had a couple of internships at these large companies and it just wasn't for me. Like I wanted to go fast, try big ideas, you know, do new things, and it's hard to do that uh, inside a large company. And so I'd been kind of poking around for that, and you know, I met uh, actually Drew Houston, the founder of Dropbox and MIT's entrepreneurship club, and we became friends. Uh, which will come back to you know the San Francisco side of this. But there was also this mailing list that if you were like a computer science student, you could subscribe to. It was Ann Hunter's list. Uh, she's I think she's an administrator in the computer science department at MIT. But this mailing list blew up and a lot of people use it. And it became the go-to for business students at Harvard or, or Yale to email when they had a brilliant business idea and they just needed to find that like tech person to code it for them most of the requests that went out on this list were outrageous. You know, it'd be a, you know, first year MBA student seeing like, you know, I just need to build like Facebook, but you know, for cats or like some like, <laughs> you know, massive amount of engineering work for dubious business potential. But then there was one email that came in from, I think it was sent by Justin, Justin Kahn and Emmett Shear to the co-founders of, of Justin TV and Twitch. And um, their message was different because 
I was like, we don't really know what we're doing. We want to build a reality TV show and strap a camera to someone's head. But by the way, we sold our last company. Uh, so we're successful entrepreneurs. We sold it on eBay. And I was like, oh, okay, these guys know what they're doing. And it turned out, you know, the sale was, was you know, in today's terms, not very impressive. They put their company on eBay, which no one has, I think, to, to date really ever done. They sold it for like $250,000. And in my mind, as a freshman or sophomore at MIT, this is a huge outcome for them. They, they're like proven entrepreneurs. They've just done the impossible. And I wanted to work with them and, and learn from them. And so, you know, I met up with them in a coffee shop and they pitched their idea. And then I spent probably a few weeks putting together this proposal on how to actually build not just one of these cameras, but if we want to build 10 of them or even a thousand of them, what that roadmap would look like. Um, and they saw that and they're like, they were bluffing and pretending they have a lot of interest from other people. I came to find out they only had one proposal just for me. And so they said, okay, come, let's build a camera and then come out, you know, to visit us in January when you're off from school and keep working on the camera and like, you know, help us start the company. Um, and, you know, long story short, I flew out. Uh, they never bought a return ticket for me and I never came back. <laughs> it, that, that fairly matches up with what, I, what I've what i heard. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. So it, from there, you know, you you built um, a bunch of cameras that strapped on people's heads and had, you know, decent battery life. And uh, and then, you know, you're, you're in this group of friends who are all kind of involved in Y Combinator. Some are building social networks. Some are building YouTube channels or apps. And then you sort of s- step aside and say, I'm going to go back to this self-driving car idea. I mean, that's very audacious, right? Even in the middle of San Francisco. Yeah. Well, I mean, we skipped over eight years there of, of building Justin <laughs> TV and Twitch, which sure, was, sure. It was grueling. You know, we worked, we worked really long hours. Um, there was no work-life balance. Like it, it, was, it was really intense and we did a lot of things wrong. We didn't know how to manage. Like, I feel like um, a lot of the lessons that, or I guess really mistakes that we made in that seven or eight years is really what gave me the the chance to even even go after something as ambitious as trying to build self-driving cars because we're talking 2013 that's when crew started it's not that long ago but if we rewind to that moment in time the only other player or a company working on self-driving cars was google and it was known as like the ultimate sort of elite set of engineers inside of google were working on this project impossibly hard science fiction stuff and it was sort of known at the time that Google had already invested like a hundred million dollars on this. And to say, like, I just came out of a video streaming startup and I'm going to go work on self-driving cars. And by the way, my only competition is Google, the great, arguably one of the greatest tech companies in the world, sounded kind of insane on the surface. But I think the only reason I felt like I could even chip away at that is I'd learned a lot of lessons about being scrappy and building products with very, very limited resources inside of Justin TV and Twitch, because we were always, you know, on the verge of running out of cash. And that built some kind of resilience and creativity, I think, that made me think, you know, I can actually take on this problem. It's high risk for sure, but maybe there's a really capital light way to go at it where we can get a product out there and learn from users without necessarily, you know, needing to have the hundred million dollars that Google had spent or all the hundreds of really brilliant engineers that they had recruited out of Google to do it. It was a gamble, but one that I thought, you know, just maybe some combination of being naive and also having a little experience building startups made me think it was a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So uh, I love that you say you, you were trying to approach it in a capital light way and and do it a little different. Um, how did you how did you start? I mean, what was what were your first steps then? Well, I, I, it's kind of 
I guess I should say it's, it's a little ironic that I say capital light because now this has become one of the most capital intensive startups in, in recent history. I mean, we've raised billions of dollars right, uh, right. to build self-driving cars. Um, but at the time, I thought, you know, the only way you can really get off the ground is not by starting sa- and saying this is only going to work if we have, you know, $7 billion. You have to find a way to, to get there a little sooner or um, it's not really something you can do as an independent company. So anyways, the first, my first approach, I, I was trying to break down the problem and say, like, well, maybe these really expensive cars covered with sensors aren't the thing that you can actually turn into a product right away. So like, what's the, what's the smallest kernel of value to a customer that you can build and sort of this intersection of being low cost, low technical complexity, high value to a customer. And I thought about things like, well, maybe you can do a really low speed valet parking feature where you drive your car up to the front of a Walmart. And instead of having to weave through the lot to find a parking spot, you could just push a button and someone could remotely, you know, drive your car to a parking spot. That's kind of cool. That adds value. And, you know, the cost to do something like that is not the same as covering a car and sensors to make it like a full driverless robo taxi. And then the other idea that I was thinking through was, was highway driving and the commute. And thinking back to that, you know, long drive going from Kansas to Las Vegas, like, well, maybe that idea of, of you know, doing sort of an auto steering type system would be helpful too, because no one likes driving, you know, an hour or two on a highway commute. And the technical task, basically keep the car between the lane markers, seemed kind of limited. And, and that would certainly have a lot of value if people didn't have to drive their car. And so ended up going that route and building really one of the first highway autopilot systems, which consisted of a computer that would go in your trunk and a sensor pod that we'd mount on the roof of the car. And it would use cameras and radars um, and a motor mounted under your steering wheel to keep the car in its lane. And you could literally push a button and the steering wheel would go into automated control and it worked. You'd still have to supervise the system and be ready to take over. You know, if it, if it looked like it was going to make uh, the wrong move, it wasn't a, uh, you know, not the same level of rigor and validation that we have on driverless robo taxis, but in terms of delivering value to a specific set of customers with a problem for not very much money, we, we, we kind of had something there. Was that your first product? That was the first product we went after, Highway Autopilot. And we built this on a few cars and did some demos and then, then decided to go a different direction. Well, how did you decide to pivot away from that? We put it up on the website for pre-orders based on our, the, the demo videos we had created. And this is common tactic in early stage companies, right? We're doing customer development. Is there, is there a demand for this product at this price? And we didn't get a lot of bites. And so we thought, well, maybe we have to drop the price. We have to make it. Uh, the other problem we ran into is on our form where you could submit uh, and say you're interested. We asked you to tell us what kind of make and model of car you have. And the challenge with this approach is that each make and model of car would require a lot of customization and engineering work to make the system work since it's a a retrofit, it's being bolted onto your car, essentially. We were hoping that like most of the people in San Francisco would all have kind of the same car, like maybe a BMW 3 Series or a Honda (laughs) Civic or something. But it was there's no one category of car where like we'd have a lot of customers. And so... Huh. I thought everyone just drove a Subaru these days. Yeah, or what, well, I mean, these days maybe it's a Tesla. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so so we're like, okay, we have a problem here. And at the same time that we were trying to wrestle with this problem of how do we increase the market size here beyond just the one type of vehicle, this Audi S4 that we had started with, we were also having conversations with uh, a few friends of mine, uh, or a few, a few friends. One in particular, I remember uh, his name is Tikon. 
And uh, he was saying like, well, you know, rideshare is blowing up and they're spending a ton of money on drivers. Like you should take this technology and do robo taxis. And I thought that is going more, you know, head to head with what Google is doing. But I see the opportunity. This wasn't really obvious early on because uh, at this moment, Uber and Lyft were going from these tiny startups to these massive companies with multi-billion dollar valuations. And there was a new market emerging. And the, and the beauty of rideshare vehicles or, or thinking about like a fleet of self-driving cars is you can imagine those operating like 24 hours a day. You can have a vehicle that's a little more expensive. It has some sensors, some compute systems in it. But since it's operating 24 hours a day, it actually kind of pencils out. And you can imagine the economics working. Um, and so I thought about that for a while and said, you know, what? we've got a great team here, some really good engineers. If we can find an investor willing to sign up for this, this am- much more ambitious vision, it could be really interesting because the, the market opportunity is now clear with these rideshare companies and kind of the sky is the limit once, once you come out there with a real self-driving car. And so we managed to get Nabil Hyatt from Spark Capital to write us a check for our Series A. And it was a weird investment because we were like, hey, we've shown that we have some capabilities here with this Cruise RP1, but we actually want to raise money and do something completely different. Are you up for that? He spent some time you know, getting to know us and ultimately agreed to do that. And that, that next check was what got us to the point where we could actually show a self-driving car, a prototype, driving around city blocks in San Francisco just, just a few months later. Wow. So what year was that? Uh, late 2014 or 2015. That's fascinating. And I want to hear more about that process of transitioning from thinking about highways to thinking about city streets. And the, uh, San Francisco is an incredibly complicated city for driving in. How did you and your team wrap your head around it? Yeah, well, I mean, the thinking around major cities is that that's where all these rideshare companies operate. That's where they make all the money. Um, that's where the demand is. And so this only really works is if you can, you can build a self-driving car that can operate in that environment. But it, yeah, it's really hard. San Francisco is a pretty chaotic environment. It's like most you know, really dense urban areas. But that's the challenge you have to solve if you want to unlock the value here and, and um, you know, meet the customer's needs, I guess. The big pivot from highways to city streets was tough. I had to really think through it. And me and my co-founder, Dan Kahn, were you know, penciling out what the strategy, like the go-to-market strategy would look like, how much time it would take to develop, how we would roll out the fleet, and whether we'd own the vehicles or lease them and all these things sort of in secrecy because we didn't want to let our current team members know that we were going to completely switch gears to a new business model because they would sort of say, okay, you've lost faith in the company and that's, you know, I don't know if that's what I signed up for. And so, you know, we spent a couple of weeks sort of in a crash course trying to, trying to figure out this new, essentially new business plan. And then when we made the decision to do that, I sat down with each of our team members one by one, there's maybe 20 people or so, and basically did the pitch and said, all right, this is why this isn't working. We have a great team. This is what we're going to go do. Are you with us? And everyone, everyone signed up except one person. And I respect their decision because it was not what they came to the company for. But everyone else was like, you sound crazy, but there's something here. When we come back, I'll ask Kyle what happened when his scrappy startup started talking to GM and what he calls a huge leap of faith. But first, a quick break. So from that time, um, you've had just tremendous growth. But before we talk about just growth in headcount and growth in the company, something major happened in 2016. And I'd love to hear, um, you know, how you were first approached by GM. How that started. 
was GM had a, a venture arm that was pretty active in Silicon Valley and they had scouts. So they were looking, I mean, credit to GM for this, they were looking for technologies that could be disruptive to the auto sector. And they had been working on their own technology called Super Cruise. Very confusing name because <laughs> my company is called Cruise. Um, same concept. And so they were following along as we did the RP1 highway autopilot work. And they were pretty impressed by the speed. You know, they just check in every few months and we'd be like so much further along and be testing and you know have, have real products out there. And then when they found out about the pivot to, uh, to, to working on city streets, full robo-taxis, they were kind of curious, but uh, nothing, nothing too crazy yet. And then ultimately, um, eventually an idea started to form inside of GM that, you know, maybe car ownership is going to change now that Uber and Lyft are blowing up. Well, will people no longer buy cars? So how can we participate in this? And I think ultimately GM ended up investing in Lyft. And they were also thinking like, well, what's beyond rideshare? And it could be that robo taxis are a real thing. And I think there was a kernel of an idea that that, that might happen. And GM thought that it was like, this was uh, Dan Ammon, the president of GM, and then also Mary Barra, the uh, CEO, who are thinking through this they came to the conclusion that there's enough risk that this is disruptive that they need to be a part of it. And ultimately, they were going to do it in, internally inside of GM um, or bet you know, like on a startup to do it. And so originally, they wanted to invest in Cruise. And after a bunch of negotiation, we, we ultimately arrived, uh, arrived that uh, they should buy Cruise. And I think the, the equation kind of worked out. You know, For us, we knew we had to raise a lot more money at this point to make our vision happen. And we also knew that eventually we had to get it into lots and lots of vehicles and working with, you know, a car maker, the biggest one in the United States at the time, uh, is probably the fastest way to get that out there. And so we would give up some independence and control. In exchange, we get massive scaling opportunity uh, and a good outcome for, for employees and investors. And so we took that deal and uh, that was in 2016 and it actually worked out, you know, really well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's neat that you've kind of been able to take other investments since then, um, that it's sort of spun out and you've re retained some, you know, autonomy, really. Yeah, I think the senior leadership at GM knew that, you know, they know internally, right? It's a large companies are, are good at many things. What can be challenging is having a brand new upstart inside of a large company and not having it like end up in a death by a thousand cuts situations where yeah. you know the legal department puts a restriction on you, then the accounting one, and so on. And, and at the end of the day, no one feels they can get anything done without getting approvals from seven or eight different people. And that works for like large companies and big scalable systems, but it's really hard for innovation. There was a couple tricks, like having basically a single point of contact on, on the GM side that all the people within GM had to go through. And so they could act as sort of a, a broker and say, this is an important thing for us to talk to crews about. This is not. And kind of keep the company from swallowing crews, which would have happened otherwise. And so I, I you know, I credit the, the leadership team at GM for recognizing their own weaknesses and, and kind of trying to set that up. That's so interesting. So that was they had the foresight there, or were there things that you had to kind of negotiate for or know that you had to retain autonomy on? Well, and these kinds of deals, my view is they're buying the company, so they have control. And so whatever you put on paper, you know, for what happens after the acquisition is uh you know, of dubious value. It really depends what's the person on the other side of the table thinking, what do they want to happen, and do they have a realistic expectation for what it's going to take to get there? And so for me, it was more about knowing that um, this was strategically important to GM and something they didn't want to screw up, that I kind of had to take a leap of faith with the people I was working with and assume that they were going to make the right decisions. And that was a risk. And in a lot of times, I've seen large companies buy smaller ones. And, uh, 
and it doesn't work out. And so it was a risk. And I think there's a decent chance if you did the same deal 10 times over, nine out of 10, it may not, might not have worked. So you knew it was a risk going into it. What was the thing that tipped the scales for you? Or, or was there one thing that you said, this is worth it? This is worth taking the deal for this upside? One thing I think that we developed early on at Cruise was the idea that there's a mission here. We can use this technology to do really good things, like for automotive safety, for giving people their time back. And it's really important that we see this through and make it happen. And this is kind of bigger than us as individuals. And so I tried to, like, as the leader of the company, live that and say, like, okay, well, what's the most important thing for the mission? And the thing that uh, Dan Ammon inside of GM said that really resonated with me is, like, you know, maybe you can do this as an independent company. And maybe you can go out and raise money and build these cars and launch your service. But wouldn't you agree if we did this together, you could get there faster and achieve that mission sooner? And I couldn't really argue with that. I think it's true. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, have you learned anything about leadership or managing since being at GM? Or did most of that learning come earlier in your career um, You know, at Twitch or starting up Cruise? I'm still learning a lot about managing. I mean, I don't think that's a journey that ever stops. But at uh, Justin TV and Twitch, I think the company size was around three or 400 people at the time I left. And I wasn't even managing that whole group then. So it didn't take very long uh, before I was you know, over my skis a little bit in terms of managing and really trying to figure things out as I went along. And so you know, it's nice to have other, other friends in San Francisco that were running companies of similar sizes. And then also you know, some good opportunities for men- mentorship from, from leaders inside GM as well when it came to some management challenges. But definitely, like, I'm, I'm still learning. It's a tough job. I don't know if that ever ends. I've, I've never met someone who says, like, I'm an expert at management and I'm done. Like, I'm just at the top of the game. It, it just, I don't think that ever happens. I mean, it can't, right? Um, companies are always shifting and so is the world, right? I mean, the best managers and CEOs I, I know today still have coaches, right? So that, that learning mentality never dies. Do you have a, a leadership or, or management coach? Uh, I don't at the moment. I've had, like, probably five or six over the last decade. Um, but I'm always swapping in people for new ideas. I think it's pretty valuable. Yeah, that's fantastic. What's one piece of advice you've gotten from a coach that you can share? One of the small actions that uh, I started taking, which is going to sound really trivial and obvious, but I just started doing it and saw like a lot of results was just uh, in meetings, letting everyone else speak first um, and get their ideas on the table. And that does a couple of things. First of all, there may be a good idea that you didn't think of that pops up. But secondly, if everyone has a chance to voice their opinion and then someone makes the call, uh, they know that they were heard and their idea was considered. And that just builds like a lot more confidence and trust in leadership that they actually truly care about what their team is bringing to the table. I think the, the larger a company gets, the less the executives or, or CEO or whoever actually does. It's more about the team doing it. And you have to set up the team for success. And so little actions like that, showing that you do care and value their opinion, I think go a long way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just hiring the right people. Um, now, since the the GM acquisition, um, you've hired like literally thousands of people. You're up to 2,000 employees now. Is that correct? Yeah, a little more than that. Keep, keep growing. Yeah, incredible. So, I mean, how has hiring and retention been over the last two years? Um, it is, you know, uh, all over the news that everyone is antsy at their workplace or quitting or moving on. Wh- how has it been for you in terms of hiring and, and how do you draw in the, the, the incredible engineering talent? 
Well, I think, you know, a lot of people start with the assumption that, you know, if, if you pay someone, they'll just show up every day and do the job. And, and that's kind of, it's like a contractual thing. You know, once, once you sign the agreement, they're going to do the work and work as hard as they can. And I think uh, I've seen a lot of founders who start, myself included, who start off with this assumption and they expect everyone around them to work as hard as 20-year-old founders like we did in the early Justin TV days. That doesn't come automatically. I think you, and maybe that's not even the sustainable way to do work at least for me and what I've learned, and again, probably things that sound obvious now, but to, to have a, a culture where you can attract good people and retain them, culture is one piece of it, which I'll come back to, having a good compensation and incentive structure, and then a powerful mission or finding a way to take whatever you're doing and communicate it in a really powerful way, and then opportunities for growth. Like, those, like everyone who comes to the company wants to know that they're not just there to do a job, they're thinking about their career. And acknowledging that and providing training opportunities or growth opportunities or new challenges and making it clear what those are is how you get someone in the door and then also how you keep them there. And so, you know, I tell a lot of people when they join crews, um, this is not an easy job. You're going to be hopefully always kept at the, the uncomfortable part of the learning curve because that's where you grow. And I want everyone at the company to have a growth mindset and growth mentality, myself included, um, and just focus on being, you know, doing their best work and, and growing their skills and abilities as fast as they can. Uh, cause that's just good for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. How do you, how do you kind of engineer for that? How do you keep people learning and keep people growing and push them to that sometimes uncomfortable place in their work? Um, that seems like a, a kind of difficult thing to get right. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways it's self-selecting because the people who really want to be uncomfortable will constantly be taking on more responsibility and challenging themselves. In other cases, we've, we've spotted really good work and then loaded that person up with more opportunity and said, hey, do you, you know, maybe you don't have the, maybe your resume doesn't say you're qualified for this. You don't have the, the experience we would normally expect, but do you want to try this? Uh, can you, do, you know, do you think you can do this and, and give people a shot? I mean, we don't try not to lean too far forward because then you can set someone up to fail. But certainly if, if someone um, is doing great work and wants to grow, like spotting that proactively is really important. And that's that's not something that I can do at the top of the company. It's got to be embodied at every um, level of leadership in the company. Yeah, that's fantastic. And tell me more about the culture. Um, how would you how would you describe it? Or, or rather, how would an employee describe it? Well, I got to start by acknowledging we made a lot of mistakes along the way, particularly in the 2017, 2018 timeline. We were growing the headcount over 3x per year. Wow, and we basically fit our our thinking at the time was really simple, which is you know we're doing a lot of engineering work and there's so much work to do. We need to hire more engineers, and we did that without putting as much thought into the hiring like the right balance of really senior engineers that can mentor people who are still growing, uh, and also really seasoned engineering leaders um, who can attract and retain and and get high output from their teams. And so as a result, the culture suffered because we had a lot of people with growth opportunities or who wanted to grow, but didn't have managers who knew how to help them grow. That basically made it feel like, you know, joining crews might've been like a dead end for your career. And so we had a real problem there and started focusing on building out a really senior engineering management team, particularly on the engineering side, because that's, that was, you know, where we were suffering the most. And it, it took us probably a couple of years to fully recover from that and build out, you know, a solid leadership team that had done this before knows how to inspire and recruit and provide growth, growth opportunities for the team and then to fill in all the, the really good leaders we needed across the board. So, you know, that was a key thing. There are a lot of other pieces that go into really good company culture and engineering culture, but we focused on, you know, a handful of behaviors and doubling down and trying to reinforce those. 
and encouraging all our leaders to lead by example. But one thing that, you know, when people talk about the the culture at Cruise that we're really proud of is, is our focus. And I think this kind of starts from early in my career at Justin TV and Twitch and early days of Cruise, which is like, we're going to figure out what the one most important thing is to move the company to the next level, you know, maybe on the next 12 months and get the entire company working on that one thing. And it sounds really simple, but when you have 2000 plus people across lots of different functions, lots of different teams, the tendency is for each team to create its own set of goals that maybe improve their system in some way, but don't necessarily have a linkage back to the company's goal. And I said, no, everyone has to be in some way contributing to this, this goal. We're going to say no to everything else, like do this one thing. And when you do that, you have a culture where everyone feels like they're part of the same team. They're all going after the single goal and you get, create this like sense of progress and speed and velocity and everyone can feel it because they're like kind of swept up in this stream that's moving really fast towards the objective. And it just creates this sense of energy and accomplishment and bustling intensity that, that I think is, is kind of addicting once you get a part of that, that culture of focus and, and really picking the one emotion thing and just doing that and putting blinders on and, and pushing everything else aside is, is a key part of our culture. Does that single goal change frequently or does it largely stay the same? How, how does that work? Well, ultimately, like, you know, zooming out, what we want to do at Cruise is deploy self-driving cars at scale. because we think it's going to have massive positive benefits for society. And so that's the North Star and longer term roadmap. But each year, the leadership team sits down and says, you know, knowing that's where we're going in the future, what's the fork in the road we should take that's sort of directionally aligned, but something we can accomplish this year. And so it does change a little bit year to year. This year, we have driverless robotaxis operating in the city of San Francisco. What do we want to do? More cars out there and cover you know, the whole city. And that's, that's a very simple goal. Um, that, and everyone knows how they need to contribute towards that. And next year, it's probably more about many cities and growth. Um, but we can kind of change that each year, but still keeping in mind our long-term vision. So 2022, you've launched robotaxis in San Francisco. And it was just, was it, was it two weeks ago that you were driving, doing the first uh, actual rides, actual ability for people to sign up and try to get a robo-taxi? Yeah, so it's been happening quickly. Just in November 1st, I took my very first ride, which was the first time anyone's ridden in a driverless robo-taxi in a major U.S. city. And then uh, we did some employee rides. And then, as you said, just a couple weeks ago, members of the public are able to download our app and hail a robo taxi that shows up with no one in it, pulls up to where they are and, and takes them through the city. That is wild. So you tweeted that on day one of launching Cruise to the Public, someone fell asleep in the back of the taxi. <laughs> no, you knew this. Yeah, that same person has done that like twice now, I think, using our <laughs> service. Yeah. So you knew this was going to happen. Everyone dreams of sleeping in their car someday and not having to pilot it, right? Um, and you you asked, what noise should we deploy to wake up passengers? Did you decide on a, a noise? Uh, did you get any good submissions? I mean, there were a lot of submissions on that. Like, you know, <laughs> what, basically, what's the alarm clock for if you fall asleep in a robo-taxi? And uh, my conclusion from that is, we should not pick, I'm not going to pick that sound. I think everyone wanted something, they wanted to customize it. So we're going to let people do that. I mean, some people wanted some very not safe for work type things to wake them up. And other people wanted the gentle, you know, alarm clock chime that you have on your iPhone or something. And so my takeaway is there's no, there's no single answer. And this is a really fun opportunity for people to, to customize the experience and have it be exactly what they want it to be. So not going to go with anything like any saucy default there. We might have a saucy default, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure which one just yet. But I, I think that's, you know, 
for something like this, it's such a cool technology. It's such a new thing. It's so magical. You have to have a little fun with it too. And that's got to that's gotta show up in the product in little places where you don't expect it. And I think that's a great opportunity. Yeah. So where are you in, in terms of um, regulatory stuff? Um, San Francisco is okay with you having these cars drive around um, for short distances without anyone in them. Is that is that right? Yeah. So regulation for driverless cars has been an interesting thing to watch develop over the years. Simply at the federal level, you have NHTSA, NHTA, NHTSA that regulates um, the safety of cars in the U.S. and they can recall them and things like that. And then each state has the ability to regulate like permitting and licensing and that kind of thing. And so you really need both the federal and state to be on board to operate. And in some cases, there's even city level ordinances. And so at the federal level, NHTSA, they're a regulator, but they have the public's interest in mind. They want to make transportation safer. And it's pretty clear when you look at the fact that most car accidents are caused by humans being human and making mistakes, that, you know, robo taxis should be able to improve automotive safety over time. And so they're generally supportive. They want to see this technology develop and exist um, to combat the increasing amount of distracted driving and other things. You know, we're all on Instagram and TikTok and whatever it is instead of paying attention to the road. And that's just human. And at the state level in California, we've gotten permits from the Department of Motor Vehicles, and we're working on a permit from the California Public Utilities Commission. And basically there is just having a permit to be able to operate these cars and then a separate set of permits to be able to charge money and actually operate a robo-taxi service. And so, you know, we expect within, hopefully within the next few months, we'll have the complete set of permits across the board, all the approvals from the federal and state level um, to actually be charging money because right now we're not. Uh, and we could do that for a small fleet, but eventually, you know, when we're operating lots and lots of cars, it gets very expensive to just offer a service for free. And at that point, um, you know, we'll we'll be sort of in the very beginning of a journey to to scale up and try to increase the number of vehicles and the number of users and uh, the number of places that you can use this service. Has one of the robotaxis ever been pulled over? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, uh, we try to stay close with law enforcement and let them know what to expect, right? Especially first responders, um, in the event that there's an emergency, not necessarily related to the self-driving car, but whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and so we've, we've worked with them very closely to let them know what to expect and how to interact with these vehicles. But, uh, we've had a couple of police officers who, in my opinion, were just kind of curious and we'll turn on their lights <laughs> and see if the car pulls over. And it does, which which is amazing. And then they'll get out and walk up to the car and see no one inside. And we have the ability for our customer service agents to talk through an audio connection to officers when that happens. But on the technology side, to have the car figure out that there's flashing lights, that that means you're, this car is supposed to be pulling over, not the not the car in front of you and so on. And to have it execute that maneuver in real time and stay pulled over as the police officer walks up. Sounds very simple and obvious to a human, but the amount of behind the scenes work to enable that on the technical side is is staggering. Yeah, wow. Right now, do you have like a customer service person working on every car like live as it's driving? No, just uh, there's just a single button in the car that you can push if you wanna talk to someone and and understand how to, how to use the service or how to use the app or whatever. And then in certain situations, like if the car's pulled over, um, or if there's a construction zone and the car doesn't know how to proceed, it can proactively call out to customer support or a, another set of people that are capable of um, sort of dropping breadcrumbs or hints for the AV to help it get through a confusing situation. Wow, cool. Yeah, it's, it's fun <laughs> stuff. That is so neat. 
there's this thing that happens, I think, with self-driving cars in general um, because there had been so many predictions 20 years ago, 10 years ago about when we would all have self-driving cars. Now, there is plenty of technology that is related to self-driving and autopiloting within lots of the new vehicles that are out on the road today. A lot of lane control and speed control and automatic stopping and cameras, rear view, front view. But there are really no self-driving cars yet um, functionally on the road. And everyone likes to say like, well, wasn't this supposed to happen in 2018? Wasn't this supposed to happen in 2015? Like, is that like, is that demoralizing to you or your staff ever as you're still trying to solve this very difficult problem? To me, no, I'm used to it. There are lots of critics in the industry who, who even though we're, we're operating driverless robo taxis today in San Francisco, still say this mm-hmm. technology is not here and never coming. Um, and I think like at some point you just have to seek truth for yourself, which one of our behaviors at Groove, seek truth, like look at the data, look at the facts, decide for yourself um, what you think about an issue. In this case, like we see a pretty clear path from a technical and operational and product and regulatory standpoint to get this product out there. And so it's not a question of if, it's it's when. And uh, I'll be the first to say that this took a lot longer than I had hoped originally to develop and build this technology and cost a lot more money. But that's because it's a deceptively complicated problem. You know, at the, it, and, and I say that because in just six months, you know, the early version of cruise employees or maybe 20 of us were able to get a prototype self-driving car driving around a few blocks in San Francisco. The challenge then is making this technology safety critical and have the right level of redundancies and validation to handle all the weird things that can happen, including police officers pulling you over. And then also to have AI that can handle all the weird things that can happen in San Francisco that aren't expected and uh, perform at a level that that people expect. And, and that's one of those things where the difference between a prototype and a production system might be 10,000 or 100,000 X in terms of performance, even though the prototype kind of looks like it's working. So there's a lot of people today who, who have this, you know, technology like this in your cars, but you are the redundancy. You have to take over if it makes a mistake. Pulling that person out of the car, I think, is one of the most challenging engineering initiatives that, that really we as a society have taken on in the last, you know, several decades. I mean, we've had computers have beaten humans at checkers and chess, you know, several years ago. Recently, computers have beat humans at video games. But um, to be on par with or, or close to human performance on a task like driving, where the environment's completely unpredictable, the vehicle itself is bouncing around on bumpy roads with, with sensors that can overheat and break and all these things, and to, to make a safety-critical decision in literally the blink of an eye is an extreme technical challenge. And it's taken time to do it, but I think we are at the verge of um, real deployment of this. And it's it's one of those things that Maybe it's, uh, you know, it's suddenly appearing and people are surprised by it, but it's nearly a decade in the works. What are we looking at in terms of the next few years, the next decade? What do you predict the landscape will look like? Um, actually, give me, give me in five years and then in 10. Um, will there be a commercially available product, do you think? Well, commercially available product, I, I hope it's just a matter of months from in, in San Francisco. Well, beyond taxis? The really interesting thing uh, about this technology and its evolution is, at least within Cruise, it's been improving several hundred percent per year, year over year, for many years. But there's this threshold that you have to reach before it's ready to put out there commercially. And so we're, you know, on this long, say, couple decade timeline of self-driving cars, 
we're just at that interesting point in time when the improvement line and rate of improvement for this technology has put it over the threshold where you can start to launch. But it's not going to stop improving now. It's going to keep improving several hundred percent per year every year. And there's really going to be fewer and fewer impediments to rolling this stuff out. The cost of the sensors is dropping, the, the manufacturing capabilities of companies like Cruise are increasing, and the performance of the software is getting really, really good. I think you're going to see very rapid scaling. So in, in five years' time, I expect easily most major U.S. cities and probably several around the world to have full-scale driverless robo-taxi service available to, to members of the public at a really you know, attractive price. And even in that time horizon, you might start to see the first handful of products available to consumers to go out and buy. And I'm talking a car that you buy it or lease it, whatever it is, you can push a button and then literally fall asleep or swivel around in your chair and talk to people. That's the future of self-driving cars that we were promised. And I think we're going to see that. Not, not what we have today, which is systems where you really work for your car. You have to act as a backup driver and monitor what, what it's you're doing. You're, you, you know, you're subservient to the car at that point. And, and I think in less than five years' time, we're going to see that flip. Wow. I would love to just turn around and play a board game with my kids instead of uh, <laughs> piloting them. It's, it's a weird thing we do today. We all sit in the car and we all stare forward and you're looking at the back of a seat and you can kind of interact with the driver, but by doing so, you're distracting them. It's a very strange social dynamic. And I know that's the norm today, but and not that long, we're going to look back on this and say, what were we thinking? And uh, I can't wait for that day. That's neat. What advice would you have for a founder who is just starting out today and has has an idea that might just compete with Google or some other major player and says, I don't know if I can get into this crazy field, but maybe I can? What would you, What advice would you have? Well, you know, large companies are typically slow for, for a lot of good reasons and, and real reasons. And, and that's, that's okay if they're already a large company. Startups can move incredibly fast. And what that means is listening to the customers, shipping new features, iterating, and building like a kernel of a product that a small group of people absolutely love. And I think that's the beauty of an early stage company is you can do that. And so, you know, this is the advice why Combinator and a lot of other um, incubators will give you, but it's absolutely true, which is like, listen to your customers build what they want. Don't try to please everyone, but just build that small you know, set of customer base and grow it. And I think you can chip away at a corner of a market that maybe a large company owns, but do a piece of it better than they do and go after customers that aren't large enterprise customers necessarily, but ones that are willing to take a chance. And you know, if you solve their problem, even you know, 20 or 30% better, they'll, they'll jump over. And I think that can be done. Um, I've seen it time and time again. I mean, Justin TV and Twitch, moved really fast and listened to the customers, the, the gamers who wanted to stream their content. I remember Emmett Shear, the, the CEO, was obsessive about calling up customers, listening to their you know, complaints about the website and fixing them the next week. And if you do that for months and months in a row, eventually you have a product that's exactly what your users want, while the people inside the, the big company are you know, trying to hire a product manager who's going to do market research and other things. And it's going to take them six months to you know, do what you can do in a week. Great. Well, that's such good advice. Thank you so much, Kyle, for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. After talking with Kyle, what impressed me was that he's been so solely dedicated almost his entire life to this one audacious challenge to make cars that drive without humans telling them what to do. And he's really getting there. 
Sure, there are naysayers who will chime in and say, well, we were promised flying cars. We were promised self-driving cars years ago. Kyle's saying these are incredibly complex problems to solve. And yeah, we've come a long way. He's not only beginning to test with real passengers, totally self-driving robo-taxis on San Francisco's maze of streets. But in an update to this interview since we taped it, Kyle has been once again made full CEO of Cruise, the company he built, by GM's executive, Mary Barra. Keeping at your passions through the years, and despite the naysayers, that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. If you have an idea of a founder you'd love to hear from, drop me a note at whatiknowatinc.com. Or you can let me know directly on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who may or may not have been the person dozing off in those San Francisco robo-taxis, is Joshua Christensen. Our production assistant is Blake Odom and editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. What I Know.